In a lonely, forgotten, and unknown grave lies a man who did not give his life on the battlefield for his country, a man who did not risk his life for causes most people do, but who nevertheless performed one of the most heroic acts in American history. His act was as great as any deed of valor upon any battlefield. This is a man who may well have preserved for every generation that follows the constitutional government of the United States. This obscure man, who now comes out of the pages of the past into our excursion in history, is Edmund G. Ross, United States Senator from Kansas. The time is 1866, 1867, and 1868. These are times of turmoil, and there is a bitter struggle going on between the President of the United States, Andrew Johnson, and the more radical Republicans of Congress. The bitter struggle is over who shall administer punishment to the downtrodden South. President Johnson was determined to carry out the policies and plans of the late President Abraham Lincoln, a plan which called for reconciliation and immediate readmittance into the Union of the seceded states. And just as determined to administer punishment to the South were the radicals in Congress. They were going to make the South pay for the rights that they had forfeited by secession. The clash came when the radicals tried to make the legislative branch of the government supreme. President Johnson accepted the challenge and with his belligerent temperament soon destroyed any hope that the Congress and he might join hands in carrying out Lincoln's policies of permitting the South to resume her place in the Union as soon as possible. The leader of the radical Republicans in Congress was Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania. He was a pathetic person, one to be sympathized with more than castigated. He was illegitimate, very ugly, and was to carry with him throughout his life a club foot. His youth had been an unhappy one, and he was usually rejected by young ladies of his day. He swore to overcome his handicaps, and in almost every instance, he did. He became a successful lawyer and then went on to become elected to Congress. He was now in a position of power in the House of Representatives. So it is understandable to some degree why now Thaddeus Stevens began to make things difficult for the defeated, helpless Southern secessionists. All the years of rejection, all the bitterness and heartbreak of a younger life, for all these frustrations, someone would have to pay, and that someone would be the South. Stevens became the fanatical personification of the extreme radical Republicans and the master of the House of Representatives. The fight between the Congress and the President continued, with the President vetoing bills he felt were contrary to the best interest of the country and the Congress, under the leadership of the radicals, would muster two-thirds vote and override his veto. Little by little, Congress began stripping the President of his power. Finally, when the Congress passed the Tenure in Office Act, the stage was set for what could have been a great tragedy. This Tenure of Office Act prevented the President from removing, without the consent of the Senate, all new office holders whose appointments, 
required confirmation by them. In August of 1867, President Johnson accepted the challenge to his presidential power and fired Secretary of War Stanton from his cabinet. The president felt that Stanton was a tool of the radical Republicans and therefore dismissed him. Andrew Johnson had intentionally broken the law and thwarted the will of Congress. This was the move that Stevens had been waiting for, a move by which he could place the president on trial and remove him from office. This would be an impeachment move. On February 24, 1868, a resolution was introduced into the House of Representatives by Representative Kovode to impeach the President of the United States. Eleven charges were leveled against the President. The Kovode resolution carried the House of Representatives by a margin of 126 to 47. Now, according to the Constitution, the Senate of the United States must try the President on the impeachment charges. On March 5, 1868, the frenzied trial got underway in the Senate. It would be presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Solomon P. Chase. This trial would rank with all the great trials of history, like the trial of Charles I before the High Court of Justice and that of Louis XVI of France before the French Convention. Representing the President as his counsel were the best legal minds in the country, men like William Everts, Benjamin Curtis, W.S. Goosebeck, and Henry Stansberry. Every element of the highest courtroom drama was present. Each senator was administered an oath by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to do impartial justice. Some 1,000 tickets were printed for admission to the Senate galleries, and during the trial that would last until May 16, 1868, every conceivable device was used to obtain one of the four tickets allotted each senator. Presenting the prosecution's case was Senator Ben Butler and Thaddeus Stevens, who would bungle the case against the president so badly that one might say they were more help to the president's than they were a hindrance. After the prosecution had presented its bungled case, President Johnson's defense attorneys now began to cut down the 11 articles of impeachment. This learned counsel now insisted that the Tenure in Office Act, which the President of the United States was supposed to have violated, did not pertain to President Johnson and that the act was in clear violation of the Constitution of the United States itself. Everts went on to say that it was not the duty of the Congress to place judgment on such matters as to the unconstitutionality of a law, but the job of the courts. Johnson's attorneys continued by saying that the only way that a judicial test of the Tenure in Office Act could be obtained was for the president to dismiss Stanton and then have Stanton sue for his rights in a court of law. Only in this way could a judicial test of the law under the Constitution of the United States be valid. One by one, the charges against the president had to be dropped because of lack of evidence. It seems that these conglomerations against the president had been hastily drawn and not too well thought out. But as the trial progressed, 
it became increasingly apparent that the radical Republicans did not intend to give the President of the United States a fair and impartial trial. It seemed they intended to dispose of him in any manner they could, either by hook or by crook. The chief interest that the radicals had was not in the formality of the trial, but in the tallying of the votes necessary for the President's conviction. There were 27 states in the Union at this time. Since, we must exclude the unrecognized southern states not yet back in the Union, which meant 54 members of the Senate would be voting on the President's guilt or innocent. Since it takes two-thirds majority of the Senators present to convict the President, this means that the Radicals will need 36 votes to convict the President of the impeachment charges that were still standing against him. As the Radicals caucused, they began their count. Let's see now. There were 12 Democrats in the Senate. Obviously, their votes were lost. 12 from 54 leaves 42 Republicans. But of the 42 Republicans, six courageous ones indicated that the evidence so far introduced was not, in their opinion, sufficient to convict the President under the Articles of Impeachment. Well now, that means that if we add the six Republicans to the 12 Democrats who were against impeachment, that leaves 36 persons for impeachment and 18 against. The radicals were on shaky grounds. They would have to hold the line here. If one more person cast his vote in an opposite manner, it would mean that the radicals had failed in this farce to impeach the president. Now the Radicals in caucus took a poll of the 36 remaining Republicans as to how they would vote. 35 were in favor of following what the mob wanted them to do, but one person would not announce his verdict to any preliminary poll. This man, of course, was Senator Edmund G. Ross, Senator from Kansas. But Radical leaders didn't seem much worried about the way he would vote when the time finally came. Ross's entire background already indicated that he was one of them. Ever since he took his seat in the Senate, he had silently voted for all their measures. And, on several occasions, he had made it quite clear that he was not in any sympathy with President Andrew Johnson personally or politically. But, could he really be counted on when the time came? The only indication as to how Ross felt was a casual remark he made to a fellow senator, which was that as far as he was concerned, President Johnson would have a fair trial, a fairer trial as any accused man on earth ever had. The word began to spread that Ross was shaky, and if he was to change his vote for acquittal, the radicals would be disgraced. From that moment on, Edmund G. Ross never had a peaceful moment in his life. He was pestered daily, spied upon, and subjected to every form of pressure. His residence was carefully watched. His social circles in which he associated were suspiciously scrutinized, and any moves he or his friends were to make were secretly marked in special notebooks for the purpose of extortion. He was warned by party men that he had better vote the right way. He was harangued by his constituents and even threats of assassinations were made upon him. He was hunted like a fox, 
night and day, and badgered unmercifully. He was even offered enormous bribes if he would vote the right way. To all this, Edmund G. Ross, a man with no great political experience and a man sensitive to criticisms, had to do what all great men of courage and tenacity have to do. He had to vote his convictions. Even though the way he would vote might bring about great hardships on him and his family, he had to follow his convictions. And Edmund G. Ross, the person with little or no political experience, stood defiantly against all persons. He said to his critics, I do not recognize your right to demand that I should vote either for or against conviction. I have taken an oath to do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, and trust that I shall have the courage to vote according to the dictates of my judgment and for the highest good of my country. It is now May 16, 1868. It is that fateful morning on which the vote for conviction or acquittal will take place. And on that morning, spies trace Ross's footsteps everywhere. The moment of truth now approached for this man of courage. The Senate galleries were packed. Members of the House and the Senate were in the Senate chambers. Every chair on the Senate floor was filled. And now the voting session got underway. The Chief Justice, Solomon P. Chase, who was presiding over the proceedings, reminded the spectators that absolute silence and perfect order was required. A death-like stillness enveloped the Senate chambers, and, as one person later recalled, some of the members of the House grew pale and sick under the burden of suspense. One by one, the Chief Justice put the question to each member of the Senate, How say you? And one by one, the senators answered as it had already been foretold they would. Ross's vote was the crucial one, for no one knew how the young Kansan would vote. As the chief justice was drawing close to Ross's name, Ross was thinking. I almost literally looked down into my open grave. Friendship, position, fortune, everything that makes life desirable to an ambitious man were about to be swept away by my answer. Then came the voice of the Chief Justice as he put the question to Edmund G. Ross, a man who would become the embodiment of courage. Mr. Senator Ross, how say you? Is the respondent Andrew Johnson guilty or not guilty of high misdemeanors as charged by the articles of impeachment? Every voice was stilled. Every eye was upon the young senator from Kansas. The hopes and fears, the hatreds and the bitternesses of past decades were now centered upon this one man. Then came an answer in a voice that could not be misunderstood, in a voice that was full, final, definite, unhesitating, and unmistakable. Not guilty. It was over. It was done. The President of the United States had been saved. When the voting was over and the tabulations were in, it was obvious that one vote had saved the president, had saved the system of checks and balances in our federal system, and had saved the country itself. The Chief Justice now announced that the Senate of the United States 
having tried Andrew Johnson, 17th President of the United States, upon the articles of impeachment exhibited against him by the House of Representatives, and that 35 senators having voted guilty and 19 senators having voted not guilty, it is therefore ordered and adjudged that said Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, be acquitted of the charges of the said articles of impeachment. The radicals had lost. Thaddeus Stevens was bodily hauled out of the Senate chambers, screaming and cursing and yelling. It was obvious now that the only thing that President Johnson had been guilty of was his defiant stand against these radicals. But what of Senator Ross? Why did he, a man who personally disliked President Johnson, vote not guilty? In his later years, he wrote an article for Scribner's magazine, and in this article, his reasons were made quite clear. He said, The independence of the executive office as a coordinated branch of the United States was on trial. If the president must step down a disgraced man and a political outcast upon insufficient proofs and from partisan considerations, the office of the president would be degraded. It would cease to be a coordinated branch of government and ever after be subordinated to the will of the legislature. The government was never faced by so insidious a danger or controlled by a worse element, a mob. If Andrew Johnson were acquitted, America would pass the danger point, an intolerance which so often characterizes great majorities, would be gone. What about Ross's personal life? Neither he nor any other Republican who had voted for acquittal was ever re-elected to the Senate. Ross was to return to Kansas in 1871, where he and his family were to suffer social ostracism, physical attack, and poverty. So Edmund Ross passes back into the pages of history. His heroic deed, for the most part, has been all but forgotten. Why? Why did Edmund Ross do it? All he would have had to have done was to vote the way the mob wanted him to, and his future in the Senate could have skyrocketed. He might well have outstripped his colleagues in the Senate with prestige and power, and he might have had a long and wonderful career. Yet, he chose to throw all of this away for scorn and hatred. Why? Was he a fool? No. Far from it, he was not a fool. Today, the forgotten Edmund Ross stands before us as a profile in courage, a man of conscience, for time was to vindicate him and find that what he had done was right. He was a victim of the scorching flame of intolerance which sweeps everything before it. He did his duty, knowing what it meant, his political death. He did what he knew in his heart and soul to be right. Indeed, his act was as heroic as was any soldier's who stands, fights, and dies for his country. What Edmund Ross did was in the highest traditions of American democracy and one of the loftiest of patriotic duties ever performed. What, then, are the significances for all generations to gather from these experiences? I feel that they show this 
that all men must do what they think is right. One must stand behind his convictions no matter how trying the circumstances are. A man must dissent and voice his opposition to the majority if in his soul he knows he's correct. After weighing all the evidence by which we can make a judgment, we must act accordingly. We must stand by our convictions. If we feel in our hearts, it is the right and just thing to do. We should never be stampeded into doing what the mob thinks we ought to when we know in our own minds that what we are asking of ourselves is wrong. To do otherwise would be a betrayal not only to ourselves, but to the generations who follow. Another thing to be gained from this trial of the century is the importance of one vote. How often have you heard someone say, why should I vote? What difference does my vote make anyway? The answer to that question has been adjudicated by the case in history that we have just heard. But for one vote, the future of federalism and the system of checks and balances that keeps our government functioning so well would have been subordinated to the rule of a mob. Your vote is important. It does count. It is meaningful. All one would have to do to verify this fact would be to ask President Andrew Johnson. And if he were alive today, I'm sure he would tell you how important one vote is. Last, these events prove to us that we must always take an active part in our government. We must never allow ourselves to be ruled by demagogues. And the best way to prevent any such thing from happening is to know who the candidates are and how they stand on the issues that concern our way of life. This is your government, your country. Watch over it, protect it, and it in return will give to you and the generations that follow you the way of life for which mankind has searched in the long march of time.